Hi, and welcome to Food. I'm Mark Bittman. As always, you can reach out to us at food at markbittman.com, and we are happy to hear from you. Please also consider subscribing to our newsletter, Bitman Project, bitmanproject.com, or check out our website at markbitman.com. and please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and do all the other good things that you do for podcasts that you love. Hopefully you love this one. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. 
The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water, and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bittman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. Here is a conversation between me and Kate and Marion Nessel, the Dean of Food Policy Writing in this country. Marion has been a mentor to me and a colleague of mine. She is a friend, as you will hear in my voice, and someone I've admired for almost as long as I've been writing about food. This is all true. Marion studied and has a doctorate in molecular biology, but as you'll hear, an interest in food led her to become probably the single most important, respected, and intelligent voice in food and nutrition and the policy around it in the late 20th and early 21st century. You can't overestimate Marion's importance in this field. She founded and then chaired for 15 years the Food Studies Department at NYU and is now an emerita professor there. Literally dozens of schools have modeled departments after the one Marion created and built. Her blog, Food Politics, also the name of her groundbreaking book, is a near-daily must-read for anyone who wants to keep up on meaningful developments in food policy. You can wiki Marion if you want more biography, but really, you're better off listening to this wonderful conversation Kate and I had with her about her life and about her new book, a just-published memoir called Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food Politics. Here, then, is that conversation. It's a lifetime. It's half a century that you've been teaching and writing about the effects of politics on food, about the effect of agriculture on politics, and so on, and as a direct result on our health. And so your new book is a memoir. It's called Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food Politics. And in it, you write that you began your career fascinated by nutrients, every one of them. I mean, first of all, that's a pretty strange thing to say. Second of all, <laughs> what made that fascination take hold? And, and how did you turn that fascination with nutrients into really becoming, if not the godmother of food policy, then, then a very early and wise analyst about food policy? Well, I guess the turning point was when I was teaching in the Brandeis biology department, and I was teaching courses in cell and molecular biology and running the undergraduate lab course for pre-medical students and was teaching science. And my department had this weird rule that you could only teach the same class three times in a row, and then you had to do whatever the department needed, whether you knew anything about it or not. <laughs> and Students were, well, you were, got a doctorate, you knew how to learn. And the uh, students were 
clamoring for a human biology class rather than cell biology. My three semesters of cell biology were up and I got offered human physiology or human nutrition, take your pick. And this was the time at which Francis Moore Lappe had published Diet for a Small Planet. So we'll date that as the early 70s. It's early 70s. Linus Pauling published Vitamin C in the Common Cold. Public Interest had just been started. And they had published a book called Food for People, Not for Profit. That was a compendium of, of journalism articles about every aspect of food you could possibly think of. And I was trained in biochemistry and molecular biology. So my approach to nutrition was to find out what it meant biochemically. And vitamins are fascinating biochemically because they're all different. They have completely different structures and completely different roles in the body. And that was really interesting to me. And so I started out looking at what vitamins did and talking about what they did in the body and that kind of thing. But I found out almost immediately that the science of that was kind of iffy and that there were a lot of social, economic, behavioral, political science, sociological, you know, all these things were tied up in it. And in my first class, I used all of those books that I mentioned, plus long, detailed articles about food policy from the New York Review of Books that were written by a Brandeis faculty member at the time. It was just clear to me that the fabulous thing about teaching nutrition to biology students was that you could teach critical thinking in biology, but that you also could bring in all of the other aspects of society that I thought were really interesting because you couldn't really understand the science without understanding the sociology that went with it. And because everybody eats, students could relate to nutrition in a way that they couldn't relate to cell biology. And so it was exciting because they were really engaged and excited about it and wrote fabulous papers that became the basis of everything I thought about nutrition ever since. They wrote terrific papers. And then um, a little about 40% of the class wanted to take a second semester. So I taught it again the following semester. By the time I was done with that year, I knew a lot about nutrition. I like that thing about not being able to understand the science without understanding the sociology, because so many scientists try so hard to do the opposite. Well, I think you need to, because if you want to understand how people eat, you have to understand everything about society. You have to understand agriculture. You have to take a food, what we're now calling food systems approaches to all of this. Um, you have to see the big picture because it's so much more complicated than I go to a grocery store and buy it because I like it. I mean, there's so many forces at work, your background, your family, your religion, what your friends are eating, the advertising, the marketing, uh, how much money you have, how much education you have. I mean, all of those things are totally involved in it and, and are inseparable. You can't extricate them. You can't tease them apart. You just can't. Or at least I can't. Was there a turning point when you started to think of yourself as a I mean, I know that you are, you still self-define as an academic, but there was a point at which you started writing for popular consumption and you started writing trade books and you became much more than an academic. You became someone who addressed big food policy issues for the population 
at large. How did that happen? When did that happen? Well, I think it happened pretty soon after I came to NYU when I got involved with journalists in a big way. Um, And that happened because the Department of Agriculture withdrew uh, the pyramid from the, the old food guide. The Eating Right Pyramid was at the printer being printed when the meat industry was in Washington and objecting to it. They got wind of what it was about. They objected. They forced the Department of Agriculture to withdraw it. And the Department of Agriculture said they were withdrawing the pyramid because it hadn't been tested on low income women and children, which no food guide ever had before. So that sounded phony. But I got I was quoted in an article in the Washington Post saying something acerbic about it. And I got a call that night from someone I knew in Washington saying, um, I work for the Department of Agriculture. We're not allowed to talk to the press. We're under a gag order. Do you, I have documents that will prove that the meat industry was the force that got this pyramid withdrawn. Do you think you could get these documents to the press? I thought I could do that. I didn't think that would be very difficult. So I started getting all these materials in plain brown envelopes mailed to me from uh, hotel fax machines and things like that, untraceable. I called Marion Burroughs at the New York Times, who I had met when I was in Washington, and said, you, you want to see this stuff? Oh, did she ever. And so she started writing a series of articles about the withdrawal of the pyramid. Um, you know, here's the fox guarding the hen house, I think was one of the titles on her articles. Um, you know, how, how, about how the meat industry was so influential in influencing what the department said about what people should be eating. And lots of other people picked up the story because it was a great story. And I put together a press kit of all of the documents that I had and passed them out. And therefore, I got interviewed. And by the time that year was over, uh, I had been interviewed by dozens of publications and got used to talking to reporters. I really liked talking to reporters because they were interested in the same kinds of things that I was interested in. And a lot of them were really really, really smart. And they taught me a lot. Every time I talked to a reporter, I found out, first of all, what people are interested in. And secondly, um, they would pass along whatever information they had. So it made me much better informed. Marianne, you talked about how we can't begin to understand how people eat without knowing a whole bunch of other components that go into the way they eat, such as marketing. And it reminded me of this part in your book when you talk about how in the early 90s you went to a meeting and the organizers showed like sort of cigarette advertisements from all over the world, notably Joe Camel, which has been accused of targeting children. And you wondered at the time why we don't uh, scrutinize advertisements by companies like Coca-Cola. And I was wondering if you thought that anything has changed since then in terms of advertising when it comes to food companies? The advertising is still there, but I think many, many, many more people recognize it as something that's inappropriate. I mean, I knew that cigarette companies advertised to children. I just never paid any attention to it. And in and nutritionists knew that food companies advertised to children, but they never paid any attention to it. 
And instead, I was going to meetings on childhood obesity in which speaker after speaker after speaker would get up and say, how are we going to teach mothers to feed their children better? You know, I never went to a meeting during those years in the 1990s and heard somebody say, how are we going to organize to stop food companies from marketing junk food to children? I mean, there just wasn't anybody who was doing that, except maybe for science in the for Center for Science in the Public Interest. Uh, but certainly academics weren't. And I thought that needed to change. And so I left that cigarette meeting thinking, I need to start paying attention to this. And I started collecting, I was taking pictures of food marketing all over the world. Every place I went, I started accumulating slides. I started writing articles about it. You know, and then in the late 1990s, when I had a sabbatical coming up, I turned those articles into food politics. The book that came out in 2002, that kind of brought together all of that information and did for food what had been done over and over and over again for cigarettes. And I thought I was just stating the obvious. I I mean, it never occurred to me that it would be viewed as as groundbreaking as as it has been viewed. Trying to think of a particularly egregious example of food marketing, but of course I can't do that on the spot. Well, Marion can. <laughs> All of the examples are egregious, every one of them. Just go look at a cereal package. Cereals for kids have more than 40% of their calories from added sugar. They've got cartoons on the front. I give my six-year-old Cheerios still, and we told him when we were on vacation over the summer that he could try vacation cereal, which is like, you know, what I got to do when I was growing up. You know, you get the sugar cereals while you're on vacation as a treat. And we said, okay, you want to try this? And it was like life or cinnamon toast crunch or something because my sister was there and she was pregnant. So he was, she was buying the cereals that she was craving and he tried it and he's like, it's good. Can I have the Cheerios though? (laughs) (laughs) You've brainwashed your child, but have you looked at the Cheerios section of supermarkets lately? There are 20 different varieties. I know it's like maple Cheerios, honey nut, which has been around forever, but no, we just get plain Cheerios. It's all he wants. They taste like nothing. <laughs> it tastes like cardboard. <laughs> yeah, it tastes like cardboard. I have another question. Well, <laughs> I should say <laughs> that in your book, you write about the questions that you're asked on a regular basis. And you say that one of the more difficult questions that you're asked is how you would assess your legacy. And of course, that made me want to ask you that question. So... <laughs> Would you mind answering it for us? (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, I mean, it's not something I can do. Um, Really, I can't. I mean, I have people who come up and tell me that they read my book and they changed their diet. I read your book and I went to public health school. I read your book and I started studying food. I, you know, I, I mean, I, I hear people do this, but that's not very, you know, I was trained as a quantitative scientist. I don't know what to make of that. I think other people have to have to assess my legacy. I can't do it. You know, I would say I've left, you know, this this memoir is my 15th book, if you count the ones that are edited and co-written. The library at NYU that's named after me 
flatteringly, is, you know, something that's a legacy. It's got 70,000 volumes in it. It's open to the public. It's a really important resource. And then food studies, I think, which, you know, we had, we were lucky enough to be able to organize at NYU. And we were the second such program. Uh, Gastronomy at Boston University was first. But we, by calling it food studies, it made it more academic and academically respectable. And there must be 70 or 80 programs now in the United States and throughout the world. I mean, every college has food courses, food programs, food minors, food, um, you know, some kind of food institute, food something. Everybody is studying about it now. And that's pretty thrilling. Um, I mean, I, I didn't realize when we started food studies at NYU that we were starting a food studies movement, but we were. That's really You cool. answered it. <laughs> you definitely <laughs> answered it. <laughs> Mark, do you want to take a stab at maybe maybe you should answer that question about Marion? It's hard for me to distinguish between her legacy and her influence on me. <laughs> You're an N of one. No, hardly. Um, but yeah, well, let's let's do the end of one. I mean, to me, there were, let's say, four or five people who were super influential when I was first starting to think that food was worth taking seriously. And, and the person who sort of eventually outranked and outlasted all the others was Marion. And you know, she's still someone I call if I want advice about that quadrant or whatever it is of food that I just don't know that much about. But the others, Ralph Mader, Francis Moore LePay, when Eric Schlosser's, when Fast Food Nation came out, it was really important, but that was, Eric did not go on to do a sort of food career. And Marion has been at this forever and has the, not only the initial training, but this sort of accumulated wisdom yeah, it's it's important. I persisted. You you persist. <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi folks, a word from our friends at Made In. Did you know that most of the dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in, made in pots and pans? The braised short ribs, made in, made in. The Rohan duck, made in, made in. The heritage pork chop, you got it, made in, made in. Which isn't surprising. Made in has been supplying top chefs and restaurants with high-end cookware for years. 
for the simple reason that Made In makes exactly what demanding chefs are looking for. Their carbon steel cookware, for example, combines the best of cast iron and stainless steel, gets super hot, and is rugged enough for grills or an open flame. Best of all, Made In is sold online, so their professional-grade cookware is far more affordable than other iron brands. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes on menus all around the world have in common. They're Made In, Made In. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MadeInCookware.com. That's MadeInCookware.com. Thanks. Hi, folks. We have a new sponsor and an interesting one. We all take about 20,000 breaths a day, and Americans spend about 90% of our time indoors. That indoor air that we breathe can be up to 100 times more polluted than outdoor air, according to the EPA. And indoor air pollutants can cause respiratory symptoms like sneezing, congestion, scratchy throat, and even more serious health problems like lung and heart disease. So, what's the solution? Introducing Air Doctor, the air purifier that filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so your lungs don't have to. This includes allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code BITMAN, B-I-T-T-M-A-N, and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to our listeners, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to airdoctorpro.com. That's A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use the promo code BITMAN. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, 
in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water, and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. Aquatru comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bittman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. I have another question for both of you. This is purely my nostalgia speaking. In Marion's book, she talks briefly about growing up in New York City and leaving the school day to go eat lunch at home and then going back to school, which my father has talked to me about before, but I always just found so fascinating because that's just unheard of now. And I just wanted, I wanted some anecdotes about that, about what that was like. Well, I lived on 115th Street um, near Riverside Drive, and my school was on 109th. Um, so that's what? That's quarter of a mile. Um, and yeah, I walked to school and walked home and did it twice a day without thinking about it. I had subway privileges in New York City from the age of eight. I had piano lessons in the village. I took the subway to the village and went to my piano lessons and came home. Um, Did I ever get into trouble? No, not really. Yeah, I mean, there were some things that happened, but they weren't, um, you know, I mean, they weren't traumatic, particularly. Um, I was out on the streets. I could go anywhere in the city I wanted to. The, The subway cost a nickel in those days. And the, um, and kids were free. In a way, the kids are not free now. Um, and I don't think it's any more dangerous now than it is for kids than it was then. But the dangers are much more heavily uh, publicized to the point where if you let an eight-year-old take a subway by herself now, you'd probably be arrested you know, for child neglect or child abuse. Um, and that's really too bad. Uh, you know, I think it was... You know, I was a city kid. I knew how to handle the city from a very early age. And it was very difficult for me to move to Los Angeles where there wasn't that kind of opportunity to move around um, because, you know, there's nobody walks on the street in Los Angeles <laughs> the, uh, and there's certainly no subways. Um, so, so, yeah, it was a different era. What would you eat for lunch? 
whatever my mother made, I would eat. And on the days when she didn't want to, <clears throat> when she wasn't going to be making lunch, I got a quarter and I could eat it. I could eat cream cheese and walnut sandwiches on date bread at delicious thing in the world i could not imagine eating anything <laughs> more wonderful or i could go to a chinese restaurant that was along that was in between where i lived in and my school that um and order chow mein which i also thought was fabulous it is don't you need something sweet on that cream cheese and date sandwich don't you need like honey or the, the bread day. is eighty percent sugar, probably. Oh, okay, right. Sweet bread. <laughs> yeah, it was fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. I mean, I loved it. Cost a quarter. My story is both similar and different. The subway was fifteen cents, which it must have skyrocketed between when you were a child and I was a child, because not that great a difference in age between us. But it is amazing that we walked. We got up at 7.30 or 8, whenever it was. We walked to school. I lived on the equivalent of 20th Street between Avenue A and Avenue B, although because it was Stuyvesant Town, those streets didn't exist. And school was on 20th Street west of 1st, so also about a quarter mile. Five-minute walk, 10-minute walk. No one thought twice about walking home for lunch. I think you had 45 minutes, so you walked home in five minutes or eight minutes or whatever, and... Your mother made you a tuna fish sandwich or some scrambled eggs, or sometimes my grandfather came over and we'd have something a little more elaborate. And um, Oh, I love that. Really? <laughs> yeah, he'd come over with bagels or with hard rolls and, you know, a bunch of cheese or sometimes locks or whatever. And then you'd turn around and you'd walk back to school and you'd start all over again. And then you'd walk home in the afternoon and that so every kid walked a mile a day. I mean, speaking minimum. of differences, yeah, minimum. Oh, but then you got thrown out of the house and instructed not to come back until dinner time. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Meaning like from the time the school day would end. Yeah. Go they were like, find something to do in between. Yeah. yeah, go out and play until the radio programs came on. There was no television in those days. So, yeah, I was outside riding my bicycle or playing handball or running around or whatever, or taking piano lessons in the village. We did that, too. I started riding the subway. I think I was actually nine. and I, um, But same kind of experience. By the time I was 10 or 11, I was going all over the city without, and no one, it wasn't like I was disobeying anyone. I mean, I had to tell my mother where I was going, but I just went, usually with friends, but guitar lessons, the allergist had to go get allergy shots twice a week. So that was very <laughs> exciting. They did nothing, by the way. Um, you know what cured my allergies? And then I'll shut up. Here's what cured my allergies. Not living in a house, not living in an apartment where two people smoked a total of 60 or 70 cigarettes a day. As soon as I left that house, my allergies went away. Right. I want to ask one more sort of policy thing, or maybe we'll ask two, but I talked to the same people, many of the same people you talked to, friends in the food policy and the food movement, and some these days are downright, uh, not giddy, but optimistic. And um, they'll say things like, well, we'll have a better food system 10 years from now. I hear that a lot. I think it's some of it is that 
Vilsack 2 is not as bad as Vilsack 1, and some of it is that Biden gives at least a little lip service to food. We had the White House conference that you were enthusiastic about a couple of weeks ago. I think think I said a little enthusiastic. I didn't say you were over the moon. Um, You said, actually, the thing you were most enthusiastic about was seeing old friends. Um, I think some of it is that there is a movement and it's more visible and more powerful and um, it's more cross-cultural and all of that is great. But, you know, I'm really not confident that things are improving in the short or the long term. I'm hopeful, as I said, but I'm not, I'm certainly not giddy. I'm wondering how you're feeling about. Well, when I'm in my glass half full mode, I think about how much the food system has improved in the last 30 years uh, or 40. Um, You know, 40 years ago, supermarkets didn't have anywhere near the variety of produce that they have now. It was not possible to go into a supermarket and eat healthfully uh, without being really fussy about what you were getting. And now you can go to any supermarket in America and uh, you, if you've got the money, you can get the foods that you want and need. Um, there are more people who are interested in these issues. That certainly clear. There are thousands of organizations of people who are working to improve the food system one way or the other. And I use food studies as a personal marker. You know, 25 years ago, there were two programs, maybe three that in universities that were interested in food, and now there's hundreds, um, you know, and many, you know, 70 or, 70 or so formal ones, but lots of informal ones as well. And, uh, and the, the interest in food have gotten much more sophisticated, so that whereas even 10 years ago, I couldn't use the word capitalism in a class, without making people really uncomfortable. Now the audience is saying, aren't you really talking about capitalism? What do we do to try to block the most unfortunate parts of capitalism that are creating so much inequality? I see that as an improvement. Um, And that's where the hope is that somehow all of this will get harnessed in some way that these groups will coalesce, that they'll form coalitions and maybe get some real political power. Um, That's where the hope is, whether it's optimistic or not remains to be seen. But the more that we work for those kinds of goals, the better the chance will be that they can be achieved if the opportunity presents itself. And so in a way, it's trying to get ready for, for the opportunity and hoping that the political configurations will work out in such a way that things that we've dreamed up for a long time will become possible. I'll say two things. One is that last thing I always sort of call the gay marriage syndrome. I mean, no one thought gay marriage was going to happen anytime soon. And then the stars, the people who are advocating for it were ready when the stars aligned and boom. Right. But I also know that when you're in a glass half empty mode, you recognize that there's also 10 times as much junk food in the supermarket as there was 30 or 40 years ago. I'm enormously concerned about corporate power over the over the food supply. The 
Um, you know, I mean, I just say this over and over and over again that corporations, food corporations are not social service agencies. They're not public health agencies. They're businesses. Their primary goal, their only goal is to make money for their stockholders. And they are so tightly focused on that, that everything else gets shoved aside. And unfortunately, uh, we collaborate with that in that the most profitable products in the supermarket are junk foods, or what we're now calling ultra-processed foods that are industrially produced, don't look like the foods they came from, can't be made in home kitchens, and induce people to eat too much. Brilliantly succinct. Last question, unless, Kate, you have anything you want to interject. I I have to be honest. I was thinking about potato chips. (laughs) I'm sorry. You're supposed to. I mean, I I watch sports, and I got to tell you, when the pepperoni pizza ads come on, I'm like, yeah, I would like a pepperoni pizza. Unfortunately, I don't keep them in the freezer or I'd be eating, you know, for a week. The things that I'm tempted by, I try not to keep in the house. I mean. Yeah, it's the only strategy. That's why you only got sugar-sweetened cereal on vacation. Vacation cereal. Vacation cereal. (laughs) You could brand it as that. Marion, last question we ask everybody. What did you have for dinner last night? A salad. (laughs) Did you make it? Yes. What was in there? Well, I picked tomatoes off my terrace. Um, because I've got some late season tomatoes ripening, and I have parsley and basil on my terrace, although the basil's not very good anymore, Um, and mix it with some supermarket things. Sounds great. Just what I was in the mood for, sorry. That's a perfect Mary Nestle answer. (laughs) Of course you had a salad last night out of ingredients that you grew. (laughs) (laughs) On my 12th floor terrace in Manhattan. You're an inspiration to us all. I mean, it's true. So thank you, Marion. It's really been great having you here. My pleasure. Thank you, Marion. Good to see you. Honestly, I can't count the number of times that I've turned to Marion for advice, whether by phone or in person or from her books or blog. And, um, It's really a joy to have her on the podcast. I want to thank her for her participation. She's just been a great friend and mentor, as I've said. And thank you, of course, to Kate, my producer and co-host, and Davis Lloyd, our engineer. And thanks to you for listening. Follow Marion on Instagram and Twitter at Marion Nessel. And check out Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food Politics, which is out now. We will speak to you next week when we will have somebody awesome. Bye for now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.